Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email at feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth, and Karen is studying for exams right now, so you should send her a tweet to at a Karen, U-H-K-E-R-E-N, and wish her luck. We have a great interview for you on this episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Today we're here with Professor Stephen Carter of Yale and his daughter, Leah Carter. Um, thank you so much for joining me. Professor Carter, would you like to introduce yourself? I'm Stephen Carter. It's a real delight to be with you, Elizabeth, to talk about my grandmother's story. Uh, and I hope we have a great conversation with you and with my daughter, Leah. Leah? My name is Leah Carter. I was a lawyer for several years, and then for the past two years, I have been working on this book. So it's really exciting that it's out there and uh, people are talking about it. And yeah, I'm just super excited to talk about it. So for our listeners, the book that we're talking about is Invisible, the Forgotten Story of the Black Woman Lawyer Who Took Down America's Most Powerful Mobster. And I wanted to tell you the way that I got interested in this book was in 2012, I was visiting the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. And there is a small plaque there in one of the rooms. And it talks about your grandmother, Eunice Carter, and uh, her role in the Lucky Luciano trial. And I remember seeing it and reading it. And I thought, this is such a cool story. This is so exciting. I need to find out more about Eunice Carter. And I went home and I looked on the internet and there wasn't that much. I think there was one web page somewhere and that was it. And I would share it for Women's History Month and for Black History Month, but I, you know, there, there wasn't a lot more out there. And so when I, I noticed that this book was coming out, I'd seen some publicity for it. I was very excited to read it. So I was able to get an advanced copy from the publisher and read it. And uh, now here we are with this interview. So Professor Carter, can you tell me how you came to write this book, the decision to choose this subject or the journey to, uh, to writing this book? Well, first, I want to go back to something you said a moment ago about how excited you when you heard about this. One of the real delights about having this book published is that for me, Eunice is my grandmother, uh, this formidable woman I never got to know well. She died when I was a teenager and whose story I knew very little about. But as I've shared her story with others, both in the process of working on the book and since the book has come out, one thing that's really moved me, and I think Leah would say the same, is how excited, how terribly excited people have been. People seem to be touched by her story. You have to imagine this, this black woman in the 1930s, uh, the lone prosecutor in an office of 20 who is not a white male going after organized crime figures. It's a very exciting story. And for me, it was a labor of love. I can't tell you exactly why I started, but the stories had collected in my mind over the years. I heard them mainly from my parents. And after a while, it seemed time to start uh, researching. Fortunately, Leah came on board to be the principal researcher. And this book is our product. When I joined, I decided to come on because I didn't know very much about Eunice. I knew that she was my great-grandmother and she had been a prosecutor in New York in the 30s and had been involved in putting away Lucky Luciano. But that was pretty much it. And I think that when my dad first started working on the book, he started sharing things that he was learning. And it was just fascinating to hear all this stuff that he was learning, not just about Eunice, but her whole family. And I just, I guess, got really thirsty to like learn more about it. Um, so being able to just work on it for a while was really exciting. So can you tell us a little bit about the research that you had to do? Was there a lot in your 
family documents that you had? You had to talk to the city and state of New York about it. My grandmother's own papers were unfortunately lost some years ago. Over the years, a number of historians have come looking, and we've had to tell them we don't have her papers. But we did track down papers in various sources. There are the records of the New York County District Attorney. There were papers that Leah went through, Mayor McLeod Bethune's papers, uh, for example, and a number of collections at Howard and, and elsewhere. There were some people who had uh, memories that we were able to uh, uh, to talk to. And then a lot of it was also put together from public records, from court records, uh, from even newspaper and magazine articles. Uh, but Leah spent a lot of time in those archives and has some, I think, wonderful stories to tell about it. Where I spent most of my time, as my dad mentioned, Howard has an amazing collection of Eunice's father's letters. Her father's name was William Hunton, and he wrote several times a week to his best friend, Jesse Moreland. Jesse Moreland's papers are kept at Howard, and they include just years of uh, William's letters to him. We don't have Jesse Moreland's letters back to William because those would presumably be in William's possession somewhere. But William's letters to Jesse Moreland are there, and that was really, um, I think for me, my favorite part of the research because I got to read through years and years of letters where he was writing almost constantly. I really felt like I got to know him sort of better than anyone else, actually, in the family. And that was a really cool experience. I actually, when I got to his last letter before he died, he died fairly young of tuberculosis. And when I read his last letter, I started crying in the reading room at the library at Howard, which was a little embarrassing. But it was just because I, I really felt like he, this was you know, my great, great grandfather, most people don't get to know their great, great grandfathers, but I felt like like he was a relative who I knew who was dying. That was really cool. Another thing at the Schomburg Center in New York, Eunice's brother, Alpheus, who's also a really interesting figure. He was a communist who went to jail in the 50s for refusing to name names. And he was also a scholar of Victorian literature and just a fascinating character. His papers are at the Schomburg and I spent a lot of time there looking through his letters and also some of his academic papers. There are also some of those at Howard because he taught at Howard. And uh, yeah, as my dad mentioned, I spent a lot of time on Mary McLeod Bethune's papers also, which are kept at the National Archives for Black Women's History, which is housed in Maryland, because Eunice and Mary McLeod Bethune were pretty close. And Eunice was very involved in the National Council of Negro Women, which Bethune founded. I feel like that was the place where I sort of got to know Eunice the best um, on a personal level was reading her correspondence in the National Council for Negro Women archives. That sounds like a very special experience that you had getting to read those papers from your family members. Yeah, it really was. Professor Carter, one of the things in this book is that your great grandparents were also very accomplished. How much of those stories did you know before writing this book? I knew a little bit, but not uh, very much. And it's true, they were remarkable people. So you had Eunice, the subject of the book, and her younger brother, Alpheus. And they were both, as Leah said, enormously accomplished uh, people. But their parents were these really quite amazing activists, uh, given their day. William, the father, who, as Leah said, uh, died young was a field secretary for the YMCA, which in those days was a globe-straddling organization. And one of his jobs, his principal jobs, was running what was called the uh, colored branches of the YMCA. But in, in search of that, he traveled not only all over the country, but all over the world. He uh, 
gave speeches in Tokyo and Switzerland. He had lunch at Buckingham Palace. That's a story his wife loved to tell. And Addie, Addie Hunton, Eunice's mother, was also uh, quite the story. She was a considerable activist in her day, and among her many, many uh, different accomplishments was a field secretary for the uh, NAACP and went into what they used to call the Badlands, uh, places in the south and the border states in the Midwest where the Klan was ascendant and the local black communities had been completely intimidated. Here, this little woman traveling by herself would go into these communities and give these rousing, fiery speeches to get people's confidence up so that they could be active again on their own behalf. So they're really uh, quite remarkable parents, and there was really quite a, a bit to, uh, I, I think, for Eunice and Alpheus to live up to. I think what struck me reading both this book and another book called The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks is that there is a huge history of the civil rights movement before the Montgomery bus boycott. But there's, it doesn't seem to me that there's a lot of that information out there for a general audience. Do you have any other recommendations for people who want to know more about that subject? Well, I'm glad you brought up the rebellious life of Miss Rosa Parks because, well, I actually haven't read it yet, although I have bought it. And I am reading another book by the same author called A More Beautiful and Terrible History, which is about the civil rights movement and the way that sort of the history of the civil rights movement is framed and used in modern discourse, often for ends that are really sort of at odds with the goals of many of the activists at the time. But a couple of books that I think are really interesting. So this came up while we were researching for the book. A lot of it is about um, Eunice's life in Harlem. And there is a wonderful book called On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker by Alelia Bundles, who is Madam C.J. Walker's, I want to say great, great, great granddaughter. I might be getting the number of generations wrong, but that's a really interesting book. And then she has a forthcoming book called The Joy Goddess of Harlem about uh, Madam Walker's daughter. Yeah, so those I think will provide a really interesting sort of look at Harlem at the time and what was going on and in the black community. And, and speaking of Harlem uh, at the time, uh, one of the things that we tend to forget uh, about Harlem, it, it's true, as Lisa, we forget a lot about the society that was constructed there. But we also forget that in the 1930s, Harlem was largely run uh, by the mob and not the black mobs, which had been driven out of Harlem by then. Uh, but the various white ethnic mobs, first for a while, Dutch Schultz seemed to be at the top and later Luck Luciano, and that Eunice and others in Harlem came of age at a time when it was simply taken for granted, taken for granted by people who lived in Harlem, that Harlem was basically under the control of the mob, that pretty much every store in Harlem uh, paid tribute to the mob. One has to get this image clear to understand the atmosphere in which uh, Eunice not only came of age, but took it into her head to go to law school and wound up, of course, being a, a prosecutor. That's something that I really liked about the book is that you got a wonderful sense of time and place and what New York City and, and Harlem in particular were like during the 20s and 30s. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about Eunice Carter's other work outside of her legal career with nonprofits and international organizations just for people who don't know about the National Council of Negro Women, what that was, and, and the, I think a women's peace organization. So people who have heard of Eunice Carter, my grandmother, know her as this mob-busting prosecutor whose legal theory, like a Luciano, behind bars. But her parents 
the great activists they were were international activists. Uh, they were known in various communities around the world. When she was very young, in fact, uh, her mother took her and her younger brother to Switzerland uh, for almost two years to study. They both became fluent in German, and Eunice in particular had a lifelong affection for Europe. She traveled there a lot. So after she ended her career as a prosecutor uh, in the mid-1940s, among the many things she did was to become much more of an internationalist, uh, first indirectly because the National Council of Women, which at that time was probably the most influential black women's organization in the country, one of the most influential black organizations in the country, founded and run by Mary McLeod Bethune. Eunice was a lifelong friend of Mary McLeod Bethune, as was, uh, was her mother. They knew each other very well. Eunice was the chair of the board of the National Council for many years and represented the council uh, abroad in a number of different uh, at a number of different international conferences. Eunice later in life would become involved in the International Council of Women, which was a predominantly white uh, organization, and travel abroad for that, as well as for a variety of other international organizations. And in all the groups she got involved with, she somehow ended up in. The leadership. She was always uh, a vice president or a treasurer or the secretary or something like that. But when I think of Eunice the Internationalist, uh, the moment I think of that was both her finest moment and also in certain ways her most controversial uh, came when the Genocide Treaty was being proposed uh, in the early 1950s and came before the Senate for ratification. Eunice went to Capitol Hill to testify in favor of the treaty. The treaty was very controversial. A lot of the opposition to the treaty came from uh, Southern segregationists who wanted a rider to the treaty, insisting that it had nothing to do with the treatment of uh, of black people in the United States. Uh, Eunice testified in favor of it. She testified very strongly uh, in favor of it. Uh, but as uh, people who know that history know, the, the, uh, it didn't actually do any good. The treaty was not ratified in 1950s. In fact, the United States did not ratify the Genocide Convention until Ronald Reagan was president some 35 years or 36 years after it was first presented to the Senate. One thing I find really fascinating about that moment, actually, I think it's one of the really interesting moments where we see the difference between Eunice uh, and her brother Alpheus. Because Eunice was involved in the sort of effort to ratifying the treaty is not going to, you know, affect the United States. Like, don't worry, no one's going to – this doesn't have anything to do with the way that – the horrific way that we treat black people. And her brother, Alpheus, was actually part of drafting a document that was titled We Charge Genocide that was basically saying, yes, actually, there is a genocide going on in the United States. This is the sort of thing that uh, the Genocide Convention should address. Uh, it's just I'm very interested in sort of the way that their views diverge and sort of Eunice's whatever she may have thought personally, I think, was just more of a pragmatist and thought that we should get this ratified and that's what's important. And Alpheus, I think, was much more like, I guess, ideologically pure. I mean, that sounds really judgmental of Eunice, but I think he was just more of an idealist. And I find that a very interesting difference. Professor Carter, you mentioned that there was a semi-fictionalized version of your grandmother in Boardwalk Empire. Do you think we'll see your grandmother's story in another format, like a documentary or TV or movie? I don't know. I would certainly hope so. And I hope so in the, the sense that we live at a time when a lot of people, certainly a lot of people I've met on book tour, 
or have a sense of, of foreboding, a sense of barriers closing in. And, and I think it's a time when it's really important to expose people to stories from times when the barriers were far greater than they are now, when people achieved really remarkable things. And one of the remarkable things about Eunice uh, that I, I always think is worthy of mention is, is that back in the 1930s, she was talking in a serious way about what we now call sexual harassment, for instance, which was not an issue for people back then. But she gave a speech in 1937, I believe it was, in which she talked about men who used their positions to obtain what she called a relations of an intimate nature uh, with women. And she said, boiling in oil is little too good for that sort of men. And today, of course, uh, I hope a lot of people would agree with that. But at the time, this was a fairly revolutionary claim to be making uh, in the 1930s, in the midst of the Depression, when a lot of people didn't even have work, to be out there fighting for women's rights in the workplace was a remarkable moment. And, and so to look at people who stood up and took positions and worked for change and were unafraid, I think is really important just now. Yes, I remember that quotation from the book. I, I think I, I put it on social media and I said, can you believe we're still talking about this for this long? That was very interesting to read. I have another question. I saw that you wrote on your Twitter, you're apolitical, so if you don't want to answer, that's fine. But I'm here in New York and Tis James is the first uh, African-American woman to be nominated for attorney general of the state by a major party. I was just wondering, what do you think your grandmother would have thought of Tis James? Well, I don't live in New York, and so I can't answer uh, directly. It's, it's really funny answering questions like that, because the funny thing about Eunice, of course, is that she was a Republican. Now, she was a Republican at a different time. She's a Republican at a time when it's hard for people to get their minds around this a little bit sometimes, but the Republicans are the party of civil rights and the Democrats are the party of, of segregation. And, and she was largely responsible for the Republicans adopting in 1944 uh, the strongest civil rights plank any party had ever adopted in the United States up to that point. But although she was a Republican, she tended to support I guess we'd call it black achievers. She grew up at a time when everyone was always the first to do this, the first black person, the first black woman. And there were so many more firsts then than now because there were so many things that had never been done before. And the way we can tell that she was a supporter, it's funny in a way. Leah uh, mentioned Harlem Society. One thing that happened among people in Harlem Society was this constant uh, stream of, of dinner parties and galas and receptions and teas. And she was constantly hosting parties for black people who had achieved great things against the odds. I don't know in the end if party affiliation would have changed her mind or not, but I think she had been very, very proud of the nomination and if she's elected, very proud of the election as well. Is there anything else uh, you really want to add? for our general audience that is interested in this book? I do want to say a couple of things um, about Eunice's, for lack of a better word, her treatment in the prosecutor's office. She was So in 1935, the governor of New York forces the corrupt DA, William Dodge, to assign a special prosecutor for organized crime. And after a bit of back and forth, Tom Dewey, who's a young rising lawyer in his mid-30s, is hired. He goes out and hires 20 lawyers who are going to be housed separately away from the rest of the DA's office. 
the press immediately labels them the 20 against the underworld, and they're 19 white men and one black woman, that is Eunice. And I think that it's important to realize what happened after that. The 19 white men were assigned to things like loan sharking and murder and corruption in the effort to bring down Lucky Luciano, the most powerful mafia leader in the country at the time. And Eunice was assigned to prostitution, which in those days was a very common assignment for female prosecutors. In fact, it was what pretty much all the female prosecutors in the country did. She was assigned to prostitution, which Dewey had made clear he was not going to prosecute. He was not interested in bringing Luciano down on that ground. The irony is that Eunice, nevertheless, researched and researched and researched until she wound up being able to tie Luciano to prostitution in New York, whereas no one else of the other 19 white males in the office could actually tie Luciano to a prosecutable crime. And in doing this, she had to overcome not only the barrier of being given an assignment nobody wanted and that the, her boss didn't take seriously, but the barrier of being stuck down at the end of the hall, furthest from the seat of power, you might say, and the barrier of constantly having her memos go unanswered as she tried again and again and again to interest the office in this. So she's sitting there alone trying to do these things. And it was that fortitude I discussed earlier that really brought her through and made her triumphant. That is, it was her legal theory that was used. It was her evidence that was used. It was the people she'd interviewed who became witnesses against Luciano. And yet, when it came time to try the case itself, Tom Dewey picked three white males to assist him in the courtroom and not Eunice. That's also a part of her story and needs to be told. And I think that the fact that Eunice was assigned to sort of the unimportant woman's work and that, you know, became the thing that brought Luciano down is such a cool fact. But the other thing about it that I find really interesting is that in the end, at trial, Luciano was basically brought down on the word of a handful of women and a handful of female sex workers, no less. Like in the 30s, this happened. Like he was you know, this powerful, untouchable man. And he was brought down by these women who I think most of the time are, you know, not socially powerful, not people who anyone would listen to. But that was what brought him down in the end. A bunch of women no one went to listen to. Yeah, it's an amazing story. Yeah, I think that's really cool. And to this day, there's still a small crowd of people who believe Luciano was innocent, that he was framed. And they point to exactly what Leah was talking to. They say, look who the witnesses were against him, that somehow unless you have some powerful mob figure, obviously a powerful male mob figure testifying that the testimony just can't be believed. It must have been, have been, uh, have been made up. That's part of the story why I wanted to read it and, and why I wanted to have you on the show. And I, I wanted to thank you so much for your time. Professor Carter, where can people find out more about your work? Well, they can go certainly to my uh, my Facebook page, but also there is a web page through uh, Yale Law School uh, that mentions pretty much everything that I've done as well. Okay, Leah, is there anything you'd like to promote aside from this book? Well, I was going to say um, if people enjoy sort of the idea, the picture of Harlem and black society in this book, one of my dad's novels, Palace Council, also takes place in a similar milieu. Yeah. Well, thank you, Leah. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. 
If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and feminist coffee hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.